So we're in Ephesians chapter 1, where we read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray you'd bless us now as we consider your word, work in our hearts and minds by your spirit, by your holy word, Lord. Transform us, cleanse us, and conform us to the image of your Son. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. You know, this is the, uh, you could say, first Ephesians, because there's actually two letters to the Ephesian church, as you may be aware. Here we have the epistle to the Ephesians, and then, if you know your Bibles, you know there's also in the book of Revelation uh, an epistle briefly addressed to the church of the Ephesians about a generation later, Okay, depending on your understanding of the date of Revelation, um, it was written later, but right now Paul is writing here about 62 or so A.D., about 30 years after the Lord Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and gone back to heaven. And so the church had been spread. Ephesians is spoken of a lot in the book of Acts. It's covered there. You know, that was where the great temple of Artemis, in Greek, in, in, from the Latin, we in the West say the temple of Diana. Uh, and they were definitely devoted to the worship of that demon goddess. Um, and if you remember the big riot they had there where they were, it, they all took to the stadium because the silversmiths were upset because people were getting saved and they weren't buying idols anymore. They weren't buying little images of uh, Diana of the Ephesians. And so they got everyone stirred up and they were in the uh, amphitheater there and they chanted for close to two hours, you know, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And finally the city... Uh, fathers came and told them they needed to quiet down because under Roman law they had an unlawful assembly and it was just going to create some real problems for them so everybody quieted down. It is interesting, the great temple of Diana now lies in ruins in a swamp uh, and so so much for the great goddess of the Ephesians. But they turned to the Lord uh, and Ephesus in time became a Christian city. And Paul, in writing here before that had happened to the church there, but it was a pretty well-established church. And um, history tells us that this is actually uh, later where Timothy ministered and also where the Apostle John uh, spent his last years. So it was a very important church historically. Paul here, in writing to them, sets forth the nature of the gospel, and he's writing to them to let them know about the great truths that um, touch their lives and touch ours. So he begins writing. We'll just look at the epistle. Hopefully we'll be able to spend a few weeks in this and learn some things. Paul, in writing to the church, he starts off with the address. simply says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints, which also be the holy ones, hagios, 
to the saints which are or who live or exist in Ephesus and the faithful ones in Christ Jesus. You know, it's interesting. You know, every word of God is pure. It's a, they're always there for a reason. And as I was preparing this, I got to thinking about Paul, the, the author of this epistle. And it's pretty wonderful in a very real way. Um, he identifies himself as the author, the one that wrote the book here, as Paul. He's no longer, and for many years now, he's no longer Saul of Tarsus. Christ had met him on the road to Damascus and changed him. And if we consider what he was, and looking at it in comparison to what he became, just as Paul wants us to do in this epistle, we just praise God for the glory of his grace. So Paul was able to write to them, not as Saul the persecutor, the one who hated Jesus, the one who was contrary to God and man, but as Paul, the one whom the Lord had called and saved. Uh, so he's now Paul, and Paul, it's interesting, the word paulos in, in Greek, um, it comes from Latin, actually. It means a small one, someone who's, who's small, kind of a diminutive, Paulus. And um, we first meet the name with Sergius Paulus in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 7. He was a deputy in the, of, of the country and uh, a prudent man, and he heard the gospel. And by all indications, he became a believer. But it's interesting because two verses after Acts 13, 7, we find Saul for the first time called Paul or Paulus in the in the Greek Paulus Paulos rather, and so the name is important. Some say, well, maybe Paul took his uh, new surname or his new uh, name from the conversion of Sergius Paulus. Others say, no, he probably just used it. Luke lets us know. By the way, you know, Paul is the one, uh, the Saul. He used that name also. So here, though, it's not about Paul. You know, he identifies himself as an apostle. The word apostle means one who is sent out. It's somewhat equivalent to the Latin word, uh, uh, well, the English word based on Latin, uh, missionary. But there's a specific use of it, meaning the 12 or those who are called directly by Christ, and Paul is in that number. Uh, Then there's a broader term, Paul actually elsewhere makes reference to those who were apostles of the church, meaning they had been sent out by the churches. Uh, Paul is using it here in the narrow sense, uh, as those who are specifically called personally by Jesus Christ, as he was on the road to Damascus. So he says, Paul, not according to his own desire, not according to men. In Galatians, he really stresses that, not by man. Uh, He wasn't made an apostle. But by God, God called him, and so Paul didn't have the fear of man, nor did he owe anyone anything other than to speak the truth in love. And so Paul identifies himself as Paul the Apostle, or Paul the one who was sent out uh, of Jesus Christ uh, through the will of God. And then he addresses to to whom he's speaking, to the saints or the holy ones who are in Ephesus and the faithful ones in Christ Jesus. He's actually looking at both groups there, okay? Uh, when I say both groups, he's looking at one one group, the church. He re- identifies them as sanctified or holy. Remember, Jesus said, uh, when he prayed in John 17, 17, he said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We learn a lot from John 17, 17. That, oh, by the way, the root word for sanctify and saint, it's the same word in you know, hagias in the Greek. And so... The idea of these being the ones who are sanctified. The main thing to notice in John 17:17 17, 17 is sanctification is not something we do. 
God is active in us and we do you know, pray and we listen to God's word and we obey his word. But sanctification is the work of God. It's his work. Jesus didn't say, Father, let them sanctify themselves through your truth. He said, sanctify them. You do it, Lord, because God has to do that. He had done that in their lives, and I hope he's doing it in your life and mine also. So Paul identifies himself, and then he uh, addresses it. But he says, to those who are sanctified, uh, holy, those are the holy ones who are in Ephesus, uh, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, that they're, they're in Jesus, that is, they've been born again, they're spiritually united to him. We see in this really the, uh, the outline of, the, of this epistle, because sanctified has to do with God's work, and the first three chapters of Ephesians deal with what God has done for us and what the gospel is all about, and then chapters 4 through 6 have to do with our faithfulness, that is, are the response of gratitude to God for his gracious work. So the epistle falls into two parts, if we're going to outline it. The two chief divisions are chapters 1 through 3, and then the second part is 4 through 6. We can also say it a little more simply, simply 1 through 3, doctrinal, 4 through 6, practical. Okay, so you've got the doctrinal part, or the doctrinal, and then you have the practical part. So... The next few weeks, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the doctrinal truths, and they're pretty awesome. So we have the first half and then the second half. First half, God's redemptive work in Christ and separating us from our sins. That's the sanctification or the holy or the saint aspect. And from the pollution that's in the world and our own corruptions and sins. And then second half, as I just said, it sets forth the practical obedience that characterizes the lives of those who are redeemed of God's elect his elect ones that are saved in this world. So he then addresses them and wishes them grace and peace. And again, every word of God is pure and is there for a reason. Some have said what you have here is, you know, charis is the Greek word for, for grace, and then uh, irene, where we get the word irenic, meaning peaceable. Uh, the, the Hebrew greeting for hello and goodbye was shalom, still is in Israel. Uh, shalom. Uh, Paul's writing in Greek, though, here, so he says grace and peace. But some believe this is kind of a way of addressing both the Jews and the Gentiles in the church, which could possibly be, but they're both, they both go together. Grace has to do with God's gracious favor freely given. And then uh, peace is the result of that. I always love the German word, Gemütlichkeit, uh, which means the comfortable, relaxed atmosphere of being peaceably at home. And I think that's a really good definition, biblically, of what peace is all about. Gemütlichkeit uh, is the... Uh, uh, the German word that's not often used to translate peace, but it definitely is a full definition of it. Uh, so today you not only get a little Greek and Hebrew, I'll throw in some German for no extra charge. Okay, that's uh, the benefits of, of showing up here. You don't always need a dictionary. I'll try to tell you so that I don't end up speaking in a, in a tongue without interpreting. Okay, uh, But grace and peace, this is what Paul wishes for them. He's inspired as he writes this. The fruit of being reconciled to God through the finished work of Christ. That is what it means to be at peace. Christ, as you know, in, in Isaiah is referred to as the Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. He is the Prince of Peace, and that means his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. He wants us to be at peace with God. Romans 5.1, being justified therefore by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we don't feel it, but God never does. We are in a relationship through faith in Christ. Because of his finished work for us, a relationship of peace. 
And then he reminds us that this grace and peace from God our Father. What a, what a blessing this is. From God our Father. You know, Christ taught us to call upon God as our Father. The Lord's Prayer, we just prayed it. Our Father, which art in heaven. Uh, I have a friend that he's no longer a Muslim, but he said, it's interesting. He said, you Christians call upon God as your father. He said, that concept is missing in Islam. He said, we don't think of God as our father. He said, that's something that's unique to Christianity. And it's true. Jesus in John 17:11, in his great high priestly prayer that he prayed right before he went to the cross, he said, and now I am no longer in the world, anticipating his soon departure. But these are in the world, referring to his disciples. And I come to you, and then he says, Holy Father. That's the name by which he addresses God. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Keep through your name. And some say, oh, well, that must be the name of Jehovah. No. Uh, well, that must be the, the Hebrew name, Yeshua HaMashiach. We have to know the, the right exact way of pronouncing it. And it's like... No, he tells you in the context what name he's talking about. He just addressed God as Holy Father. We're kept in the name of the Father. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. We're blessed by the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we baptize, whether a person comes to faith later in life or baptized as a covenant infant, uh, they're baptized, that is, the, the mark of ownership is placed upon them by the triune God, in the name of what? The Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John said in 1 John 5, 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. We're kept in the name of the Father. Paul here says, Grace and peace to you from God. And note, he doesn't just say the Father. God, our Father. Our Father. Exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. He didn't say, when you pray, say, you who are the Father. He could have said that. It would have been true. But what he taught you and me and his church to pray is our Father. We call upon God as our Heavenly Father. Paul wishes grace and truth, grace and peace, rather, to them from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Note that. God our Father and Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Here we see the Father and the Son. If Jesus was anything less than true God of true God, it would be utterly blasphemous to link his name with what Paul had just said about God the Father. You can't put a mere human's name there. But Jesus is man, but he's also God incarnate. His person is eternal. And that's why, you know, when some say, just we just read, you know, cursed is he who trusts in man. And some will say, I've heard people say this, well, Jesus, you're saying he's just a man. I say, no, we're not saying he's just a man. We're saying he is a man. But he's also God and his person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is eternal. He's been around, as it says in the Old Testament in Micah, whose goings forth are from everlasting and literally even from the days of eternity. Jesus has been one with the Father and the Holy Spirit throughout eternity. He is a divine person, one in essence with the one true God. There's not three gods, there's three persons in the Godhead as God is revealed in Scripture. And Jesus Christ is the Word, the Son of God. Incarnate, So yes, he is a man, but we pray to his person, which is eternal. And that's uh, who we trust in, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. So it's important to know these things, because otherwise 
well, should I trust in Jesus? You know, yeah, you should because of his person and what he's done in his humanity. But we come to God uh, by trusting in, in the Father through the Son and Jesus' work as Messiah is to reconcile us to the Father. So God is your Father. It's important that you know that. And then Paul goes on and he, he expresses here this inspired desire for them to experience God's grace and peace as the gifts of their heavenly Father. Note he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul begins this letter by pronouncing God to be blessed. Note he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in, uh, in, with every, or in every a spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's a lot there. This is why we're taking this small sections. Paul pronounces God blessed. Now, we don't bless God by adding anything to him. We've talked about this before. Our, our blessing God is confessional, you might say. We confess and we proclaim or declare that he is blessed. Uh, God's blessing of us is transformative. So we can declare that God is blessed because that's who he is through all eternity, the unchangeable God uh, who was and is and is to come. He is unchangeably blessed. He is the blessed God. Paul uses this reference to speak of Christ in Romans 9, 5. He refers to Jesus as the eternally blessed God uh, because he is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. God is blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul declares God to be blessed. And then he talks about what God has done for us that transforms us, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because our inheritance awaits us. Our life is really hidden with Christ in God, Paul said to the Philippians. And we await his coming. And as John says in his first epistle, now are we the sons of God, but it doesn't yet show itself. It's not yet manifested what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, that the second advent, that's transformative. And when we're raised from the dead, if you die before that happens, uh, you'll be completely conformed body, soul, and spirit, as Paul speaks of in Ephesians, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, you'll be completely conformed to his image in every aspect as a creature. You're not going to cease being a creature. You know, you don't become God when Jesus returns. Uh, you are going to be what you were meant to be, though, and that is an image bearer perfectly reflecting God's righteousness, his justice, his truth, his love, all these things. God has done this. So we declare God to be blessed. We identify who it is that does the blessing. It's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we, as Paul did, you know, he makes this proclamation. He has blessed us. He proclaims this. He has blessed us. And by the way, that's in the aorist tense. It's past tense. According to God's eternal purpose and plan, you're already blessed. And right now that's being worked out in your life. Uh, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms or heavenly places in Christ. And that's where our home is, ultimately. We look forward to that, the new heavens and the new earth. But because Jesus is in heaven, that's where our blessings are. You want to know where your blessings are found? Find where Jesus is, okay? Uh, your blessings are in heaven, and they're coming again when he returns. He is the blessed one. And note this, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. In every spiritual blessing, that is peace, joy, love, life, eternal, 
uh, all the benefits of eternal life in Jesus Christ to know God. All that is restored, is stored for us in heaven, and we experience it now. The Holy Spirit does apply these things to our hearts. That's why we're here today, because we desire to know God's will and to have his blessing upon us. I hope that's why you're here. Um, but notice, it's in the heavenly realms, in Christ. Christ is always the mediator between God and man. We stand before God forgiven, declared righteous, given the hope of heaven. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again. Christ stood for us in eternity. He is our Savior. We have this blessedness that's given to us, and if you notice it, the, the last verse, verse 6, says um, we are God has done this unto the praise of the glory of his grace, literally, in which he has favored us in the beloved one. It's always in Jesus, in Christ. Paul uses the term in the one who is loved. Okay, uh, That's what that means, that our blessings come to us through Jesus. But note what this blessing is. It's chiefly seen in our eternal election. That is, God chose us in eternity past in Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ, even as he elected us or chose us. Okay, the, the Greek word there is uh, exelexita. Okay, um, the ex means out of. He chose us out of the fallen mass of mankind uh, to be examples of his grace. And so he, as he, you could say, out-elected us. He chose us out. He deemed in his purposes to redeem you. And again, you know, I mentioned this before when we, when we ask, well, what is it, what was in me that drew God out toward me? The answer is nothing. What grew, excuse me, what drew God out toward your miserable lost state as you were headed for hell, what drew him out was his own love and purpose and grace in Christ Jesus. The reason why God has had mercy on you abides in him. He gets all the glory. There's nothing in you that made God, you know, oh, I just have to save this one as opposed to this other one over here who's just not as smart or not as, you know, doesn't have as good a smile as this other one, etc. God had mercy upon you for reasons that are in him. And this is what Paul says. He um, chose us in him, again, note, in Jesus, all right? Before the foundation of the world. In this case here, the word world seems to be being used as a synonym for the universe, we would say. This isn't talking about the world in its fallen condition and opposition to God. It includes the earth. It can mean that. There's a different word, though, in Greek for earth. He says world, meaning the whole world, okay, everything. He chose us in before the foundation of the world. If someone wants to say, well, shouldn't we maybe limit that just to the making of earth? Sure, if, you, if that makes you happy, I suppose you can do that. But the word seems to be pretty broad here. But note the word before the foundation of the world. Before God began and made the creation, he'd already chosen you in Christ. How did that happen? Well, in Timothy, Paul, I've referred to this before, and Paul also refers to this in Titus. If you have your Bibles, we'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter chapter uh, 1. Paul, speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in writing to Timothy here, this is Paul's last letter, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Paul was in, in a pretty bad way as far as the world was concerned. So he tells him, Don't be ashamed of me because of what I'm suffering. He said, But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God 
who has saved us, note that our salvation is secured, and called us, note that God's call, preachers speak to your ear, the Holy Spirit has to speak to your heart, when he does that you're called of God, that's what Paul's talking about, who, that is he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, note it's not a just a bare election, he's called you to make you holy, to conform you to his image. He's called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. I want to say praise God, because if it was by our works, we're in trouble. Uh, but according to his own purpose and grace. Note that. Why were you called of God? Why were you saved? According to God's own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. Note, before time began. That's because Jesus was there. The second person of the Trinity was with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And there in the council of God, we refer to it theologically, we said in God's council in eternity, Jesus Christ stood for you. He became your surety. He became your savior. Now, this is before you existed. You existed potentially in God's decree, but you hadn't yet come into being. You were already chosen by God in Christ Jesus before time began, and the Greek's very clear there, it's literally before t- time's eternal. Kranos uh, Ionios, okay? Before time, pra is the word for before. Pra Kranos Ionios. Before eternal ages, you could say also. Before the times of eternity or eternal times. There's never been a moment in God's existence, we have to say that because we can't use temporal things to talk about the eternal God, there's never been a moment in God's existence when he didn't love you and when he had present and future. God is eternal. Um, he created past, present, and future. He created time, okay? Um, and so you were chosen in Christ Jesus before time began. But, verse 10, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. And then Paul says this, Nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him until that day. Paul had confidence in his Savior Jesus Christ and in God's plan and purpose. But note this, you were chosen in Christ. I'm talking to believers here. If you're trusting in Jesus, it's not because, you know, you didn't come to faith because you were so smart or you exercised, you know, some sort of free will or something. You were saved because of God's eternal purpose. And he deserves all of your thanks and praise. And he gets all the glory and, and worship and thanksgiving for that. In the book of Titus, Paul starts right off. He just jumps right into it in Titus chapter 1 at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. Notice this, the election and godliness. You know, uh, some have talked about, you know, John Calvin, because he spoke spoke a lot about election. If you look in the index, if you have the, the, uh, the battles translation of, of the Institutes, has wonderful indices in the back. Uh, if you look up election, you'll find a whole lot of, in John Calvin's Institutes about election. And then look up the word piety, that subject, that is living a godly life. And it's like several columns where Calvin refers to living a, a godly life. The reason why I mention that is Calvin understood what election was all about. 
We are elected by God's free grace so that we would live holy lives. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we're looking at. But note this here. He said that the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised when? Before time began. It's the exact same phrase we just read in, in uh, 2 Timothy 1.9. Before time, when did God make a promise before eternal times? Well, the Father made a promise to Christ. The Son made a promise to the Father, and the Holy Spirit made a promise to the Father and the Son. All three persons of the Trinity entered into a covenant. We call that the covenant of, of redemption, and then as it's uh, administered in time, we refer to that as the covenant of grace. Those are theological constructs, but they, I believe, accord with Scripture. But notice, when was this promise made? Before time began. So it had to be made with people who were there, persons, and that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the triune God has covenanted in eternity to be your Savior. So you have reason to thank God and praise Him way beyond what you've been doing thus far. Me too, okay? Uh, We all need to really begin to thank God and to consider how great His love is. But as Paul says in Titus 3, or 1-3, but as in due time, uh, been manifested, uh, excuse me, he has manifested his word through preaching. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, how shall they hear without a preacher? Which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul identifies this, this wonderful plan of God in writing to Timothy and Titus, who were called to preach and lets them know it's all of God's grace. So if we look back here again at chapter uh, 1 of Ephesians, we see this, that you have the declaration, the identification, and the proclamation that God is blessed. And uh, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his purpose given to us in Christ Jesus before eternal ages. God chose us to be uh, before him, in uh, to be holy and blameless in his presence. That means when you stand before God, your sins are gone, Jesus as it says, uh, washed us with his own blood. Paul, excuse me, John in Ephesians, let me slow down. Paul, John in Revelation 1 refers to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And that's why we see the saints when they appear before the Lord in white garments, it says they washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb. It's like, well, blood doesn't make things clean, it's, it stains. No, the blood of Jesus cleanses. And that garment of righteousness that God gives to us to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. You know, the famous hymn speaks of that. That we might be blameless in His presence. Note, in love. So what's God doing in your life? Well, He's filling your heart with love. How does He do that? He shows you His love. We love Him because He first loved us. Hereby we know that we love God when we love His children and keep His commandments. See, I'm supposed to love you in the context of God's law. I keep covenant with you, and by God's grace, you keep covenant with me. That's what love is. Love's not a mushy feeling. It can't have good feelings, and it's kind of nice when it does, okay? Um, you know, if you particularly like in a, in a marriage where, you know, you, you get all googly-eyed towards your spouse, that's okay to do, all right? You ought to do that. But love is a commitment to do what is right and what is best for the other person. And that's why Christians are to love each other, and we say within the context of God's law, Totally foreign concept to most evangelicals today. Because you know, the only thing you hear from them, you mention the law, what's the first thing you're going to hear out of their mouths? We're not under the law, we're under grace. Okay? And it's like, which one of the Ten Commandments are you interested in not keeping? All right? 
You want to commit adultery? You, you plan on killing somebody? You like to steal stuff? Oh, no, we do all those. Usually boils down, they just don't want to keep the Lord's Day holy, okay? They want to be able to eat in restaurants on Sunday. So they'll throw the whole law under the bus, as we say. But God writes his law in the hearts of his people. That's what he's doing. What does that mean? You see, you can remember the Ten Commandments. I hope you can. But it means you begin to live according to his word. You keep covenant with God and with others out of gratitude to God for this free work of grace that he's done. That we might be blameless in his presence in love. See, the reason why I want to keep God's law in my relationship with you is because I love you. The reason why I hope you love me enough to want to keep God's law in relationship to me so that we're covenant keepers with each other and we do what is good and best in our prayers and in our words and in our works for each other. That's what it means to love in deed and in truth, as John said. Having predestinated us, literally, unto sonship adoption, God's already planned out your life. He's in control of everything. Jesus said the hairs of your head are numbered. Even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground. It didn't say, apart from your father knowing about it. He said, they don't, a sparrow, even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from your father. There are millions of sparrows. Once in a while, you'll see one that got hit by a car or something. They're, little sparrows are everywhere. We generally don't see them after they meet their demise. That's usually sometimes cats and other things have to do with that. But not one little sparrow. We don't even notice them. If I was to ask you, how many of you noticed the sparrows on the way to church this morning? Some of you might say, yeah, I did, actually. When I went outside, there were sparrows, and they're really pretty. We don't even notice them. God notices them, and Jesus said they don't. not one of them even falls to the ground apart from your father. Their life is planned. So it's yours. And Jesus said you're much more valued than, than sparrows. God has a plan for you. He's predestinated us. Uh, it says in, in uh, later on in chapter 2, uh, he saved us, for by grace he is saved through faith. You know that text, I hope. Uh, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, verse 10, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. The opportunity to do good and the good works that you do, they're foreordained of God. God's planned your life out. Get your eyes open, pray, and say, Lord, show me. I want, I want to be doing your will. He's predestined us unto sonship of adoption. This isn't good works here. This is the relationship he's ordained for you to have with him. Sonship adoption means you have all the privileges of being God's child. You can go to your father in the name of Jesus. You can present your broken heart, your petitions for yourself, your desires for others. You can go to God. The, the, the veil of the temple has been torn in tooth when Jesus died. You have access to the father through his son, Jesus Christ. God has predestined you. And all of his, all believers, all of his elect, unto sonship adoption through Jesus Christ, unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. God didn't save you begrudgingly. You may think, well, yeah, but I'm a pretty bad sinner. God took factored in all of that. It's all of grace. That's why Jesus suffered the death he, he suffered. God factored in your idiocy, your wickedness, your sinfulness, your corruption, your lust, your pride, your arrogancy, your bad attitudes, all of that stuff. And that's why Jesus died, was to get all that out of your life. All right? God has foreordained. Why? Because it was his good pleasure to do so. You know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's the uh, angel's announcement in Luke at the birth of Jesus. Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. God's grace, this is amazing. John Newton wrote, didn't he? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost... But now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
Sadly, that's so familiar, sometimes we sing and don't even think about it. But it, grace is amazing. And this is what Paul is saying. Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. He could have just said to the praise of his grace. That would have been okay, right? But what he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to the praise of the glory of his grace. God's glory, the infinite, eternal God, his glory is unmeasurable. It's manifested in his grace toward us, and it will be throughout all eternity in Christ Jesus. You have a future, beloved, and that means you have a present right now. Okay? Remember, I've said before, some people's lives are controlled by their past. They've made a lot of bad decisions, and you know, so you get to you get to control your decisions, and then at a certain point, they begin to control you. Okay? But we're not controlled by our past. Our sins have been forgiven. We're controlled. That is, or, or, you know, what, what's affecting your life? Your future. Your present is should be affected and is by your future. You have a future in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of God's good pleasure and to the glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So what ought we to be doing? We ought to be praising him for the glory of his grace in which he graced us, literally. It's the same, the root there, favored us or showed us grace. Um which he's favored us in the beloved one. Our hearts are filled with love because God has chosen us in the son of his love, his only begotten son whom he truly loves. And that's why our lives will be defined by God's love, his love toward us and his love working through us. So we conclude here with these uh, first six verses, kind of the, the opening broadside, you might say, from you know Paul's uh, ship of truth that, that came by, okay? So I hope these truths get a hold of your hearts and your minds and that you'll be encouraged this week. Whatever you're going through, you can go to your Heavenly Father. That's the application. If you remember in uh, Luke chapter 10, this here's the application, one verse. Luke chapter 10, let's turn there real quick uh, because this is too good to miss, all right? Uh, the 10th chapter of Luke, after Jesus had sent out the apostles and they were healing and doing miracles and wonders and all types of, of good things were going on. Jesus uh, tells them in Luke chapter uh, 10, as they came back, verse 18, when they came back, he told them, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He said, you guys, by God's grace, you really put a dent in the devil's kingdom. And then he says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And then he says this in verse 20, and here's today's application. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that is, these this gifts and power that he gives you. Don't, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. <laughs> That's what I do. Your name, if, if you can say today, with all your problems, all your failures, all your sins, all your you know, whatever you want to define it, if you can say, you know what, in spite of myself, by God's grace, I can say I am trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your name is written in heaven. That's not something you did. If you believe in Jesus, that's something God did in you and for you because of his love, his eternal, everlasting love. He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Your name is written in heaven. Because God wrote it down. That's what that book of life is all about. Their names were written in heaven from before the foundation of the world, it says in Revelation, actually from the foundation of the world. Our names are written in heaven. That's what, so Jesus told the apostles, God may have given you all kinds of grace and abilities and everything else. That's great, but that's not the basis of your rejoicing. Rejoice because of what God did. And saying your names are written in heaven is another way to describe election. That's what he says. So if you're a believer, then God elected you. 
Give him all the praise to the praise of the glory of his grace, whereby he graced us in the beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that it's true. We ask you to be with us now and seal your word to our hearts and minds. And help us, Lord, we pray, to praise your holy name in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, and to praise the glory of your grace forever. Let it start now in us, Lord, we pray. And we thank you for these beautiful and wonderful truths in your word. Apply them to our hearts and minds by your spirit and keep us in your love and grace. For we ask all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.